In the sermon last Sunday, we considered what it means as Christians that we are sons of the free woman, that we belong to that Jerusalem which is from above. And pastor, we heard from our pastor these words. Therefore, God's ethics, how shall we then live, are based on freedom. You are free, and that idea scares us. All of grace is very frightening to us. It seems irresponsible. The world sees it as irresponsible. And then the Lord calls us in our freedom from slavery to be that irresponsible with other people. You can be that gracious to other people. You can be that kind. You can be that forgiving. You can expect absolutely nothing from them and still do good to them. You can actually lose an argument and have it be okay. This is the gospel life. This is life in the gospel. Pastor Tim Keller says it in this way. He writes, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the ABCs to the XYZ of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to the biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, our hearts, our lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. This morning we're going to consider the life of a man who lived according to the grace of the gospel, grace that seems irresponsible in the sight of others. We're going to be looking at this section in uh, second, chap- uh, second Kings chapter 6 from three different perspectives. One, the fear that debilitates. Two, the prayer that animates. And then three, the grace that motivates. It began, no doubt, like any other morning, but without coffee. Coffee would not be discovered for another thousand years. I do wonder how they got up and got going without a cup of coffee. He was up early at the crack of dawn. The servant went about his routine, stoked the fire for heating the last of yesterday's water needed to cook breakfast, cleaning up any remaining dishes from the night before, and then prepare and prep the meal. And then... Time to go outside. Outside to the well to draw water needed for that day. And just like any other morning, until, that is, he rubbed the sleep from his eyes and he looked up. The psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hill from whence cometh my help. Well, as far as the servant could see, no help was coming from the hills on that morning. morning. Only the terrifying sight of one of the most powerful armies on earth and was coming for him, the servant, and for the prophet, Elisha. The fear that debilitates, the prayer that animates, and the grace that motivates. First, we're going to be looking at verses 15 and 16, uh, and the fear that debilitates. The servant saw the army, and he panicked. Now, truth be told, if I had had that scene, if I'd seen the army, I would have panicked too. But fear can and will debilitate us. Now, I want to say that it's not the immediate initial reaction to fear that is wrong. Yes, ladies, you may scream, 
when you see a mouse. That is okay. Please just know that your husbands or your sons or your brothers, when they jump through their skin, it's not because they saw the mouse, but it's because of your scream. No, it's not the fear, but it's what one does with the fear. It is how one handles his fear or her fear. Fear without the knowledge of the presence of God and the favor of God will always debilitate. It will paralyze. But God loves you with a perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear. The Lord God is present with you. He is present with you. The antidote to fear, the antidote to fear, is to remember that the Lord God is near. The Lord God is present. Think of the verses of the scriptures from, well, throughout the entirety of the Bible, from the Pentateuch on. Uh, The Lord said to Joshua, what he had said to Moses prior to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then years later, the King David, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah chapter 43, Do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Be strong and courageous. I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Now, kids of this congregation, I want you to know that there were times when I was your age, times when in the middle of the night, when I needed to know that daddy and mommy were near. My bedroom was far too far away. I would go into their bedroom, and when they allowed me, which required my most pathetic voice, I would crawl into their bed. I had to know that they were right there, that they were near. It is the nearness of the Lord God that will cast out the fear that would otherwise debilitate us. But not only is the Lord near you, he is for you. He is on your side. And by his grace, you are on his side. Psalm 56, this I know that God is for me. Paul perhaps reflecting on Psalm 56, elaborates and applies that to our hearts in the 8th chapter of Romans, where he asks rhetorically, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus give us all things, freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God who, against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul concludes, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, or anything else in all 
of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will overcome your fear when you remember that the Lord is near and he is for you. The Lord is for you. Uh, Elisha says to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I don't know about you all, but the first time I ever read this in my Christian life, and pretty much every time thereafter, I've always kind of envisioned the servant when he hears these words, do not fear. He probably, you know, looks at Elisha, and he holds up one finger and points to Elisha, and he's seen the army that fills the mountains surrounding Dothan, the city where they lived. Then he looks at himself, and he counts two, so there are two of us, and you're saying that there are more, there are, there are more uh, who are for us than against us. He's probably thinking to himself, my master has lost it, and this is not going to end well. Reminds me, the servant said, of the end scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Well, actually, he did, probably didn't say that, but if you've seen the movie, you know how that one ends, an army against two. But then Elisha prays. Open his eyes that he may see. Which brings us to our next point. We appropriate the grace of the promise of God's presence through prayer. So we have that fear which debilitates, but that prayer which animates. Prayer animates uh, the life of the Christian. It is God who removes fear, and he does so through prayer. Four times, three times in four verses, we read these words. Then Elisha prayed. Prayer will animate your faith. It brings it to life. It encourages you. The weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life are overcome by prayer, as in prayer you look to the Lord and call upon him. It is by prayer that you cast all of your anxieties and cares on him because and knowing that he cares for you. It is by prayer that you put your trust in God. Again, Psalm 56, a few verses earlier. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. This instinct of prayer, as I like to call it, is how we can pray without ceasing. Prayer over time in the the life of the Christian is to become the spontaneous, the immediate, almost automatic and involuntary response of the Christian to his or to her God. The knee-jerk reaction of the child of God. Uh, The prayer that animates. Now, for me, it's taken a long time to learn this, much longer, no doubt, uh, than it should have. But I have learned it over time um, through the example of one who was very close to me. It wasn't too many years ago when we, the crumbs, were enjoying a week together. <coughs> the, the, the Jane and I, the, the uh, children and their children. And on the last day of that family vacation, it was time to say our goodbyes, uh, to come together, and then to uh, each family kind of divides up, grabs their kids, counts their heads, makes sure they're all there, get in the rental car, and drive to the airport. But the problem that became very apparent was that the keys to the rental car of one of my sons, who will remain unnamed, the keys were missing. 
So here's dad, you know, you're looking at the clock, you're thinking of time to return the rental car, get to the airport, get on the flight, and I did what I typically do. I, you know, I start flailing my arms. Okay, everybody, all hands on deck. We all need you all here, and we need you here now. Uh, and the grandchildren especially, they all complied, and they were glad to help their uncle look for the keys to the rental car, except one. There was one who was missing. She wasn't missing in action. She was missing in prayer. Um, she went straight to prayer immediately, the spontaneous, almost knee-jerk reaction to a sudden need. And she was praying, Lord, open the eyes of my husband, of my children, of their children, that we might find those keys, because time is short. Soon thereafter, another one of my sons, who will also remain unnamed, or you'll know who the first one is, uh, says, found them, found the keys. Everyone asks, where did you find them? Well, they slipped uh, in the sofa, between the back of the sofa and the seat, and I had to reach my hands way down uh, to find them, and there they were. Prayer, that the first thing that we do, almost without thinking about it, spontaneously, is pray to the Lord, to call upon the Lord. This is exactly what Elisha did when his servant panicked in fear. He said, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. Spurgeon says, faith makes the difference between the tranquil prophet and his frightened servant. Lord, I pray thee, open the young man's eyes that he may see. And then Elisha prays a second time please, about the Assyrian army in the hills surrounding them, Lord, please strike this people with blindness, verse 18. Now, in contrast to the prayer for the servant that his eyes would be opened, Elisha now prays that his enemy would be struck with blindness, that his eyes would be closed. And then Elisha did something that defied all logic, that was contrary to all reason. He had mercy on his enemies. Our third point, the grace that motivates us to do things that the world cannot understand. The grace, the grace of Elisha, the grace of all saints of all times who know that God is our deliverer. The grace demonstrates that we belong to him. It indicates that we do not belong to the world. This is the outworking of God's grace worked in us. Elisha prays, Lord, close their eyes. Then he goes out and he leads them. And he leads them not back to Dothan, but to a city about 10 miles away, the capital of Israel, the city of Samaria, and leads the entirety of the army uh, behind the walls of uh, Samaria. First of all, as we consider this, let me say that this text in 2 Kings chapter 6 is not to be understood as teaching an ethic of pacifism. It's not teaching that war is always wrong in every circumstance, that there should be no appropriate punishment for criminal behavior. Right after our text this morning in Romans 12, we read in Romans 13 that the civil authority is God's servant for your good. He bears the sword for the restraint and the punishment of the evildoer. Nor is this text in 2 Kings teaching that, God, that as God's people, we cannot speak out against evils and injustice. Especially, for example, the greatest injustice in the history of the United States, the evil committed against 
the not yet born of our nation. 63 million and counting babies of all colors, red and yellow, black and white. No, the text is not to be understood in those absolute terms or taking it to teach something that it is not teaching. How then is this text to be understood? Well, namely, that grace changes everything. This text and throughout the entire Bible, we as God's people are taught that we must guard our hearts, that there is to be no room in our hearts for personal vengeance. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That would be toward the guy who cuts you off on the highway or the one who is rude to you when in the grocery store while waiting in line. Now, How can we do what we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and the example that was shown in the prophet Elisha? How can we possibly do that and live that in our Christian lives. One, we are to remember we are to remember who we were before the grace taught our hearts to fear, before grace taught our hearts true fear. That as sinners, before a holy God, we do have good reason to be afraid, to fear. The grace that taught our hearts true fear. Number two, we are to remember who we are now, that grace, our fears, relieved. And then three, friends, act accordingly. Act accordingly. The text teaches us that on the individual level, we are not, we are, uh, we are to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not to curse. Now to the world, the actions of grace look Absurd. And in a sense, they are. Have mercy on your sworn enemies? Really? The Syrian army would have killed Elisha and his servant without a moment's hesitation. But the question is how would Elisha respond? Would he respond in kind? Now, the king of Israel certainly let his feelings on the matter be known. We've got them. We've got them where we want them. Should I kill them? Should I kill them? Asks the king. You shall not kill them, says the prophet of God to the king of God's people. Now, on the one hand, I can understand that Elisha would not allow the prisoners to be killed. They're POWs. They were not even captured by the king's army. They were arrested by the Lord who turned their own plan against them. No longer were they surrounding the house in Dothan. They were themselves surrounded by the fortified walls of Samaria. But on the other hand, Elisha went way beyond the dictates of humanitarian treatment of one's enemies. I mean, really? To make sure that they are fed and then to set them free? Free to do what? To resume their raids on us and our land? What on earth? Who does that? Who, like Elisha, would gather his sworn enemies and sit them as his invited guests to a banquet table, we read. Evidently, the bread and the water was but an appetizer to the feast that he set before them. Who would do that? Answer. One who knows the grace of God. Elisha knew the Redeemer of Israel 
by both God's word, he was, remember, a prophet, and by his experience in God's word. He had seen the horses and the chariots of fire once before in his life, in his own experience. He himself had uttered the very words, my father, my father, on the day that he lost his best friend and his fellow prophet. You remember this story. If you care to flip back a couple of pages to chapter 2 of 2 Kings, or scroll up, whichever is easier, uh, chapter 2 of 2 Kings, I will pick up the reading in verse 9. Elijah and Elisha, faithful friends, faithful prophets. Verse 9, when they had crossed the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. And yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they continued on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and the horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the horsemen, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. By the Spirit, Elisha knew the meaning of these words. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Elisha asked Elijah that he might receive a double portion of the Holy Spirit, but his request was not for vain glory, but for God's glory. And he is the God of all grace. And the thing about grace is that those who personally know grace, they know that grace is not fair. Grace is not fair. We deserve God's wrath, yet we get God's love. We deserve punishment, and yet we receive forgiveness. We don't get what we deserve. But if it is that grace is unfair, it is gloriously unfair. For this is the good news. That the one who is just in all of his ways, the just, died for the unjust to bring us to God. And so Elisha's act of amazing grace, which motivated him to act in a way that would have been absurd in the eyes of the world. This was the means that God used to bring a halt to the raids of Israel. These home invasions on a grand scale. True, not for all time. But the Lord did stop these raids for a time. And it pointed to a grace that would cause our hostilities to cease for all time. A day when grace would prevail. That day was a day when God did not come to the rescue. On Elisha's day, the Lord God came to the rescue of two. But on this day, there was one that he did not rescue. The great and the final prophet, the king of all kings, Jesus, our great high priest. It was a day when God did not spare his only son. 
It was a day when that son, in obedience to the will of the one who sent him, did not fear. Oh, he was troubled. But he did not give in to a debilitating fear. The one who did pray spontaneously for our Lord Jesus is the man par excellence of prayer. And what did he pray? Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And who acted, motivated by the grace that, it, that is him and is in, in him, motivated to act in a way the world simply cannot understand, coming not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. For it is a trustworthy say, statement that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. We read in Matthew chapter 26, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will act at once to send me more than 12 legions of angels? But our Savior continues in the face of arrest and death. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? For our sake, the Father made the Son who knew no sin to be sin in order to set free those who are held captive to sin in order to make us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we ask, who would gather his sworn enemies and sit them as his invited guests at a banquet table? The same one who invites you Sunday after Sunday to the Lord's table. We read in Romans, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And he says to us today, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but you shall hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You know, friends, the thing about the ordeal of the last two plus years is that it forced you to take sides and it stirred up tremendous division. In the words of Buffalo Springsteen several generations ago, battle lines are being drawn. Nobody's right if everyone is wrong. You're either with us in this matter or you are against us in this matter. Angry words have been spoken, either on the phone or online. Misunderstandings were common. Father has been alienated from son, brother from sister, husband from wife, church member from church member, neighbor from neighbor. I have never seen anything like the trial of the last two plus years in my entire life. And yet, we know the God of all grace, a grace that motivates us to act in such a way that the world simply cannot understand. A grace to forgive. A grace to forgive someone who has deeply wronged you. Grace to be the first one to go in order to seek reconciliation. Not wait until he comes to me. I will go to him. Grace to ask another for forgiveness. Without pretext, without conditions, without excuses. Simply, would you please 
forgive me. This is the amazing grace that becomes more and more the amazing throughout your life. It is the grace that brought you safe thus far. And it is that grace that will lead you home. I close with these verses from God's word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Oh, may this bounteous grace, oh, may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us and keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills in this world and the next.